Uh, welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. We are glad that you are here. Um, we are in week two of a sermon series that we've just begun on the book of Philippians. So let me, let me give you a little background really quickly just to sort of remind you of where we are. So um, the Apostle Paul planted this uh, church in Philippi around 50 AD, right? So it was one of the earlier churches that he planted. And it's this, this Roman military town, for the most part, where these Roman military people would go to retire. So uh, there was no synagogue that we know of at the time um, that Paul planted it there. There, were no, there was no church. Obviously, he started that church. But it was with people that were probably very, very Roman. And uh, there were probably very few Jews there. You can t- tell in sorts of, you know, some different literary ways that he was dealing with an audience that was largely uh, Roman, right? And so he planted that church in 50. Then about 11 years later, Paul gets arrested. We'll get into that later. And uh, he is in prison, we think, in Rome. There's some debate about the location of where he was. But he writes a letter to this Philippian church. And part of the reason he writes the letter is to say thank you for a gift they've given to him as he's in prison. Part of the reason he's written to them is because he's concerned about them. And the reason that he's concerned is he's heard that there are these two um, factions within the church that are, in some respects, fighting for power, and neither of them is purely aligned with the gospel. One of the groups is uh, a group that we would call legalists, for want of a better term, and uh, this group was basically saying, you've got to do X, Y, and Z plus faith in Christ in order to be saved, right? And so Paul was writing to basically say, in the same way that he wrote in the book of Galatians, that's not the gospel. It's never... X, Y, and Z plus faith in Christ equals salvation. It's always faith in Christ equals salvation. And then there's the rest of the Christian life. This other group that was in the church was doing sort of exactly the opposite. Uh, you like that double um, intensifier, sort of exactly. For those of you who are writers, don't do that. That's not typically good to say sort of exactly anything. Doesn't say much. But, uh, but this, this group in the church was saying the opposite. What they were saying was, you know, all you have to do is have faith in Christ. It doesn't matter how you live. In the book of Romans, Paul addresses that too. And he says, if that's the way that you're living life, you're showing that your heart hasn't truly been changed by your faith in Christ. And so Paul writes to this church in order to deal with some of the things that are going on there. In the middle of all of this, these are people, these are Christians now, who are fearful of persecution and they're fearful of the breakup of their church. And Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church as a way to encourage them. Last week, we took a look at the content of his encouragement, right? In those first 11 verses of the book, he begins by saying, you can be encouraged because you have grace and peace with God and through Jesus Christ. You can have grace and peace with God. In other words, it's really a statement of the gospel, right? You've got God's unmerited favor, and you have shalom with him because of his son, Jesus. He says, be encouraged. The second thing we talked about is that he was telling them to be encouraged because God is the one that will finish the work that he has begun in them in the context of that church. In other words, it's not all up to you. Ultimately, your salvation and your sanctification, your preservation is in the hands of your heavenly Father who began that good work in you. That's good news for us as well. And then the final thing that he said is you can be encouraged because you have the affection of Christ Jesus and you have the affection, my affection as well. In other words, you can be encouraged because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And so be encouraged. This morning, we're going to jump into the second uh, section of verses from Philippians chapter 1. But before we do that, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray. Father, thank you very much for um, not only inviting us to come and to worship you through your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you for for even drawing us into this place this morning. And so, Father, again, I don't know 
uh, all of your reasons for drawing these people into this room this morning, but you do. And so, Father, I would ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, um, that, uh, that you would draw people into a relationship with you this morning. Uh, Father, that, uh, that through the power of your Spirit, whether it be through a conversation with uh, someone in this room, or whether it be through the worship, or uh, through the liturgy, or through the words of Scripture, Father, whatever it is, I pray that you would draw people into a relationship with you as their Heavenly Father, and with your Son Jesus as their Savior. Father, for those of us in this room that already have trusted in you as our Father, and your Son Jesus as our Savior, Father, I pray that, uh, that for those of us that are in that position this morning, that the words of Scripture this morning and the power of your Spirit would woo us back into your presence, not based upon our own righteousness, but based completely upon the righteousness of your Son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things this morning. Amen. So already, um, Brad has mentioned this, um, this horrible tragedy that occurred in Charleston um, earlier this week. Um, I'm not going to tell the whole story. Most of you know it. And uh, for some of you in this room who maybe, maybe don't need to hear the details of it, I'll make it very simple. This young man named Dylan Roof, who we'll see a video of in just a moment, but Dylan was a 21-year-old boy who uh, was from Charleston originally, then moved out to Lexington, which, by the way, is where my sister lives. And uh, he walked into a prayer meeting, a prayer service uh, at Emmanuel AME Church there in Charleston, South Carolina. He sat down for the first hour of this prayer meeting, spending time with these people, hearing them utter their prayers of thanks, their greetings to one another, their trust in God, and then you know the rest of the story. Uh, he was arrested, and, uh, and what was interesting um, is not so much the story of this one very troubled individual What's more interesting to me is the response of the family members of the victims of this crime, right? And the reason it's so amazing is because of what they had to say to him, right? They not only talked about their hurt, they not only talked about their pain, they not only talked about how much they missed and longed the people that had passed away, but they had something even more important to talk about. They had their hope in Christ to talk about, and they had forgiveness to offer. We're going to watch a short uh, video clip of these people speaking to Dylan and, uh, and after this, we'll jump into uh, this sermon from Philippians chapter 1. You're charged with nine counts of murder and one count of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. What is your age? 21. You're 21 years old. Are you employed? No, sir. You're unemployed at this time? Yes, sir. Thank you. I just want everybody to know, to you, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgive you. And I forgive you. You know, I forgive you. My family forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so that he can change it, can change your ways no matter what happened to you, and you'll be okay. We welcome you. Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. 
you have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. And and I'll never be the same. Tawanza Sanders is my son, but Tawanza was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. But as we said in Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. You know, I love um, the voices of those people who are in the midst of suffering, you know, just days later after losing loved ones. And I love the fact that they're embracing their suffering. They talk about their anger. They talk about their hurt. They talk about how much they are going to miss their loved ones. But what's interesting is that each of the people offers this young man forgiveness, right? Just really, really powerful. And what's interesting is um, the second place I actually read about this was on the BBC website of all places, you know, the British Broadcasting website. And so all the way into Europe, the story of not just this young man who did this horrible thing, but the voices of these people as they offer this young man forgiveness and not only point him to Christ, but they point the entire world to Christ. My favorite quote is from Anthony Thompson, whose wife died in the shooting. And he says this, he says, I forgive you. And then he goes on to say, he said, but we would like to take this opportunity um, to ask you to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change it, right? So I love the fact that in the middle of all of this tragedy, in the middle of all of this hurt, in the middle of all of this pain, these people have hope because their hope is grounded in something that is eternal, right? It's not something that's that's temporal. It's not something that's passing away. It's something that's eternal. Their hope is in Christ. And and our tendency, especially in a very secular age, right, in in a materialistic world, our tendency is to look at tragedy and to say it's meaningless, right? It's hopeless. Our tendency is to look at it and to say it's utterly capricious, that there's no meaning in it whatsoever, and therefore to become despondent or to become hopeless. And yet in the midst of this tragedy, these people have hope And they have so much hope that they're able to offer this man forgiveness. They're able to take this suffering and to point him to Christ. Just absolutely fantastic. What's interesting is in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18, we see Paul doing a very similar thing. Paul has been through suffering himself. And what he ends up doing is he ends up pointing the people, the church at Philippi, to his hope in Christ as well. Let's read these verses 12 through 18, as Paul deals with his own suffering and still points these people to his trust in Christ. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ or for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers, these are the church members there in Rome, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So what was Paul's response to suffering? His 
His suffering was not, frankly, as tragic as the suffering we heard about this morning, but what his response, what was it? His response was first and foremost to say, this is an opportunity to proclaim our hope in Christ. It's an opportunity for me to have the chance to share the gospel is essentially what he's saying. And so he says, in that I can rejoice. He goes on to say that my suffering is actually an opportunity for the brothers and sisters in Christ there in Rome to be encouraged and to be more bold in their proclamation of the gospel. And in that I can rejoice. And then the final thing he says is, again, I can rejoice because really for me, the only thing that matters is that my hope in Christ is proclaimed, that the gospel rings out, right? And so let's jump into these uh, three quick points. First of all, we see that Paul is able to rejoice knowing that his suffering is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, and we can do the same thing. Listen to verses 12 through 13. They say this, I want you to know, brothers, again, he's writing to the, to the church there in Philippi, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, the message of Christ, so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, or in other words, is for the sake of Christ. There's some words in here, there's some Greek in here that basically hint at what Paul's saying here is he's saying that I've become the talk of the town, you know, not only in the imperial guard, right, but all over the court, all over the place in Rome, people have heard that I am in chains for the gospel, and he says I can, I'm able to rejoice for that. Now, again, if you think about this for a second, you know, Paul has experienced suffering, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the suffering that he's been accused of or been forced to endure. First and foremost, he was falsely accused by a group of Jews that were in Jerusalem who accused him of taking some Greeks into the innermost parts of the temple. And so uh, they started spreading these rumors around the area, and then the other Jews got involved, and they started beating Paul. They almost beat him to death. He was saved by the Roman guards there um, that were stationed in Jerusalem. He appealed to Rome. And as he was waiting for his appeal to be heard, he had to wait for two extra years in Caesarea, which is a town that was by the sea waiting to have the chance to go to Rome. So he's stuck there. On the way to Rome, he's on a ship, and his ship is shipwrecked. And so he has to endure uh, more suffering, the storm at sea, being shipwrecked. And again, all of this because of false accusation. And then he finds himself in Rome, and uh, the suffering doesn't end there because people are trying to make his life difficult. But despite all of his suffering... Despite all of his hardship, instead of being bitter, Paul rejoices knowing that his suffering is an opportunity to proclaim Jesus, right? It's an opportunity to proclaim Jesus. And he basically says, this is what it's all about. There's a, a story of five men uh, that went to Ecuador and had the chance to take the gospel to the Alca Indians. You guys have heard of these stories before. But uh, the son of one of these men who died as he took the gospel or this message of Christ to the Alca Indians in Ecuador is a man named Steve Saint. Uh, in a book that's written by a Randy Alcorn, there's a book called If God is Good, we're told a, a story that's associated with Steve Saint and dealing with his father's death. I'm going to simply read it and ask you to follow along. So here it is. In 1986, a Christian worker named Steve Saint, this is the son of one of the men who was killed um, taking the gospel to the Alca Indians, so a Christian worker named Steve Saint was traveling through the country of Mali, as a Muslim country, when his car broke down. Stranded and alone, Steve tried to rent a truck, despite warnings that he wouldn't survive in the Sahara Desert. After he failed to find a truck, in his fear and discouragement, Steve's thoughts ran to his father, Nate Saint, a former missionary in Ecuador. When Steve was only five, Native speared to death his dad and four other missionaries, now, 30 years later, Steve found himself questioning 
his father's death, he reflected, I couldn't help but think that the murders were capricious and accident of bad timing. In other words, he's enduring his own little bit of suffering there as his truck is broken down in Mali, and he begins to reflect upon the death of his father 30 years earlier, and he begins to think or be tempted to think that it was pointless, that somehow it was really all meaningless, right? He goes on to say this, when Steve asked some locals directions to a church, so he made his way to a town, he asked some locals directions to a church, a few children led him to a tiny mud brick house with a poster on the wall showing wounded hands covering a cross. A man in flowing robes introduced himself as Yatara. Uh, Yatara started sharing with Steve about his faith in Christ. After becoming a Christian, his family had disowned him. He says that his mother even put a poison in his food at a family feast, and he ate the food but suffered no ill effects. He survived. And then Steve asked, uh, asked him why he was willing to pay such a steep price for following Christ. He simply said, I know God loves me, and I'll live with him forever. In other words, my short-term suffering is worth the long-term gain of being loved by God and living with him forever. He goes on to say, it says, but Steve pressed, where did your courage come from? He went on to, the man went on to explain that when he was young, a missionary gave him books about Christians who had suffered for their faith. And then he added, my favorite was about five young men who risked their lives to take God's good news to people in the jungles of Ecuador. The book said that they let themselves be speared to death, even though they had guns and could have killed their attackers. Utterly shocked, Steve said, one of those men was my father. Now the man felt stunned. Your father, he exclaimed. He then told Steve that God had used the death of those five brave missionaries to help him, a young Muslim who had become a Christian, hold on to his faith, right? Does that make sense? Part of what that story points out is here's this man, Steve Saint, who, if you know anything about him, is a, a wonderful, godly man who has followed in the footsteps of his father, taking the gospel to people all over the world. Here he is with the Alka Indians in Ecuador. And he says that, uh, you know, early on in his life, he has this, this breakdown in Mali, and uh, he's sitting by the side of the road, feeling sorry for himself, and he begins to think back about losing his dad at the hands of these Alka Indians, and he starts to really be tempted to think that it was all meaningless, right? That it was all purposeless, that there was, there was no reason to it. It was just utterly and completely capricious, and he meets this man, this Muslim man, who has risked everything in order to follow Christ because of the death, not just the life, but the death of his father. In other words, the suffering of his father had a meaning, right? It had purpose, and that purpose was ultimately that people might gain eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Now, what I'm not saying, what Paul is not saying, what Steve Saint is not saying, no one is saying that suffering is good, right? Not saying that at all. I, I'm not saying that there's not real evil in the world. Paul's not saying that either. Uh, Jesus came to die a real death on the cross to, to battle a real enemy in sin and in Satan, right? So we're not saying that there's no such thing as evil. We're not saying that there's no such thing as suffering. We're not saying that people's intentions aren't evil either, right? I'm not saying any of those things. But what I am saying is that our suffering, our suffering is always an opportunity to proclaim our hope in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying here is he's saying what really matters is that ultimately that I get to point people to my eternal hope in my eternal Savior. And that's more important than anything else. It's even more important than all of the suffering that I've faced. Now, I don't want to minimize this comment this morning because I know for a fact that many of you in this room this morning have been through suffering, right? I had a 
great conversation with a young man this morning who has endured much suffering of his own. And what we were able to do as we talked with one another is we were able to proclaim a little bit of the gospel to one another, a little bit of our hope in Christ. We talked about how one of the key verses that we've both focused on as we've endured suffering in our lives is to be still and know that he is God. So I don't mean to make light of your suffering, but I do ultimately mean to say what Paul says here, which is that we can rejoice knowing that our suffering actually has meaning, that it actually has purpose, and that ultimately that purpose is not only to point others to Christ, but even to point ourselves to Christ as well. And Paul rejoices in that. He also rejoices, as we're going to see in verse 14, not only that it's an opportunity to proclaim Christ, but Paul rejoiced knowing that his suffering was actually an opportunity to encourage other people. Listen to verse 14. Verse 14 says this, and most of the brothers, again, that's uh, the people that are in the Roman church there, uh, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let me read that again. And most of the brothers, not all of them, right? Uh, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So all of this suffering, right? The shipwreck, being falsely accused, being beaten, all of these things that Paul has suffered, all of these things that uh, the Roman church members and the Philippian church members are facing, all of the suffering that they're facing, and you would think that people would walk away from Christianity, right? You would think that people would go, that is too high of a price. I'm not going to put myself through that. I'm not going to put my family through that. And instead, what you see instead of people walking away from their Christianity, their hope in Christ, you see exactly the opposite happening. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that people, in the face of his suffering, as they witness his suffering, are actually becoming more confident in their faith in Christ, and as a result, are proclaiming the gospel that much more. I read an article by a, a woman named Jen Thorne. She talked to, about suffering in this article, and the title was Four Encouraging Truths About Suffering. And here's uh, what she had to say. I'll, I'll read the first three, then I'll focus on the fourth. But here are the things that she said come out of suffering. She said, first of all, suffering helps us to sympathize with others. You know, one of the things I tell people pretty frequently is I just, I love everybody. I really do. That's one of the reasons I was a good youth pastor is because I just like everybody. So the, the stinky kid, I love him. You know, the annoying kid, love that kid too. I love everybody. Um, but ultimately, uh, what I tell people these days is I say, I like everybody, but I don't really, I don't trust everybody. And I don't, I don't mean that in a distrustful kind of a way. But what I say is, I really only trust people who have suffered. Does that make sense? Like it's only after people who have really suffered in life, who have really lost something in life. It's those people who I feel myself able to entrust myself to, that I'm able to deeply connect with. What she's talking about here is that suffering helps us to actually sympathize with other people. Guess what? That's what Jesus' suffering was for. That's why he's our great high priest, is because he was hungry. He had headaches. He was rejected. He was beaten. He can understand what it means to be a human being. She says suffering helps us to sympathize with others. She says suffering... Uh, actually helps us to exercise our faith. You know, it's really easy to believe in Jesus. It's really easy to believe in God when life is easy, right? But when you begin to suffer, that's when your faith uh, goes from looking like a very thick climbing rope to a tiny spider web at times. Suffering exercises our faith. She says suffering is God's tool for our sanctification. We know that. We know that sanctification makes us ask the big, deep, dark questions, and it shows us what we're really trusting in. Are we trusting in our niceness? Are we trusting in our goodness? Are we trusting in our money? Are we trusting in our physical health? Are we trusting in Jesus? And then the thing that I'm going to talk about this morning is she, sa she says that suffering moves us to hold 
tightly or hold on tight to Jesus. Here's what she says. She says, we take our eyes off of Jesus much too easily and much too quickly. Instead of fighting the good fight, we pitch our tents on the sidelines and try to create for ourselves a life of comfort and ease, filled with things that the world tells us that we need. Jesus is quickly forgotten, the word neglected, and sin is indulged. When suffering comes into our lives and we're roused out of our sleep to see reality that earthly blessings do not satisfy or save, let me read that one more time, suffering wakes us out of our sleep to see reality that earthly blessings, money, cars, physical fitness, even a good family, those things don't satisfy nor do they save, that we must cling to Jesus for all of our needs and for life itself, that we must take up the armor of God and join in the battle against Satan and evil in the world that seeks to ruin us. We're reminded of the gift of Jesus that we already possess, a gift that is truly all that we need. Does that make sense? What she's saying here is she's saying that our suffering not only encourages us to trust in Christ, but our suffering even encourages other people to see what really matters in life, what really matters in the world. We can actually be encouraged as we see the suffering of believers as they suffer for their faith. Again, suffering for the Christian is a reminder of what is true, right? It's a reminder of what really matters. Suffering is a reminder of, of where our eternal hope truly lies, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis said that suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And it's a reminder that we can encourage others to proclaim Christ even more faithfully. And what Paul says is, he says, we can, be, we can rejoice ultimately knowing that even our suffering can encourage our fellow believers. Not only can we rejoice because our suffering is an opportunity to preach the gospel, we can rejoice because others are encouraged as they see us endure suffering for the sake of Christ. But then finally, the last thing that Paul says in verses 15 through 18 is Paul rejoices in knowing that under any circumstances, regardless of intention, regardless of blessing, regardless of suffering, regardless of what is going on, what is important is ultimately that Christ is proclaimed. Listen to verses 15 through 18. He says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So we've seen before where churches are in competition for one another to see who can be the biggest, or can, uh, who can have the best programs, or who can you know, do whatever. We know that churches and that men like myself can choose to preach for reasons that are less than noble. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, I know that some uh, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. He goes on to say, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, right? And again, part of what Paul is saying in this whole letter is he's saying, finally, my message of Christ can't be ignored. He goes on to say, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In other words, what Paul is saying over and over and over again is he's saying, my conversion, my salvation, my relationship with Christ, my hope in Christ is so important that it's the only thing that matters to me, or at least it's what matters most. That's why he could say, what then? In other words, so what? In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether in my well-being or in my suffering, what matters to me is that Christ is proclaimed. That's what suffering does for me. It boils everything down. See, you see things uh, crystally clear, right? I was in a coffee shop 
in Chattanooga within the last year, and I ran into the mother of one of my good friends um, who I had played uh, college soccer with, and I knew a little bit about the story of their family. They had a, had a very, very difficult time. Um, her parents had recently passed away. Uh, she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, one of her children uh, had been unfaithful to their wife and was separated for a little while. Another one of her children had recently been divorced. His wife abandoned them. Another child um, decided not to follow Christ. She had endured amazing suffering. I ran into her in the midst of this coffee shop, and uh, with tears in her eyes, she grabbed me by the shoulders. I'd spent a lot of time with their family. She knew that I was good buddies with their son, and I actually had a good relationship with her husband as well. She grabbed me by the shoulders, and she said, the last few years have been so difficult. She said, they've been easily the hardest years of our life. She said, it's, it, she said, it's almost broken me. And she went on to say, if it hadn't been for Christ, she said, I don't know where I would be. I don't know what I would have done. But she said, I want you to know that your only hope is in Christ. And she said, oh, and one more thing. She said, I want you to pray with Krista every night before you go to bed. Because she said, that's the only thing that is going to be your hope, not only for your relationship, but for your family. Your only hope is in Christ. And what she was doing was she was speaking out of her suffering, right? What she was saying is, your only hope is in the gospel. Your only hope is in Christ. Your only hope is in having a relationship with him. And she was basically, I don't, I don't think she would say that she would have chosen suffering. I'm sure she wouldn't have. I'm sure she would have changed it. But what she was saying is, what's become clear to me is that my only hope is in the gospel. Our salvation, our relationship with God, our ability to stand before him, our ability to have hope in something that is transcendent and eternal is the most important thing. And we need to be reminded of that. We can rejoice in our suffering when we know that ultimately and eternally we are safe in the hands of the Lord. We need to be reminded of that. Now, the good news is, is that God has given us a reminder of this truth of the gospel, a reminder of his son, Jesus. In fact, Jesus told us to celebrate uh, this remembrance of him. And this remembrance we call the Lord's Supper. Some people call it the Eucharist. Some people call it communion. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a reminder of Christ, as a reminder of the gospel. There's a table um, behind this front section with bread, and there's wine. Uh, over here to the left, there's a table with bread and, and grape juice. But what this table is, is it's a reminder of the gospel. I read an article uh, not too long ago that said there are 44 different implications of the gospel that present themselves through this idea of the Lord's Supper. But for us to really understand this meal, this Lord's Supper, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament because the roots of this Lord's Supper are found in the Passover that we read about in the book of Exodus. The children of Israel have been in slavery for 400 years, and God calls Moses to set his people free. And at the very end, after Pharaoh has refused to let the children of Israel go out of their slavery, God said, all right, there's one last punishment. He tells Moses, he says, tonight the angel of death is going to pass over and, and anyone who doesn't have the blood of a perfect lamb over the doorpost of their home, then uh, the firstborn of that home is going to die. And so Moses then, following God's command, told the children of Israel, take a spotless lamb and kill that spotless lamb and put the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of your home and you'll be safe. You'll be protected from the judgment of God and then cook that lamb and eat that lamb together and I'll set you free. And, and you know the story. The story is this, that God, the angel of the Lord, then passes over, right? And, and all of the people that have the blood over the doorpost of their home, they survive. Their oldest, their firstborn, is kept safe. 
right? Fast forward all the way to Jesus celebrating that Passover meal with the disciples. And what we see is that what Jesus basically is saying is, he's saying, now I'm the eternal Passover lamb. My blood will be over your doorpost. My blood will save you from the wrath, the judgment of God. And so when we eat this meal, this Passover meal, what we're doing is we're receiving God's proclamation over us where God says, if you trust in my son Jesus, there's no more punishment, right? There's, uh, there's no more guilt to be removed. It's already been taken off and placed upon my, my perfect son. I'm not angry with you because my wrath has been poured out upon him. You're not guilty. I'm not angry. You're innocent. You're beautiful to me. And so the message of this meal this morning is a reminder of the gospel in which we can rejoice because it's a reminder of Christ. So the people that need to hear this this morning are only those people who trust in Christ alone for their salvation first and foremost. If you haven't trusted in Christ, if you're not, not to that point yet, I would simply ask you to sit back and watch the, the children of God as we celebrate and rejoice as we eat this, this bread and this wine as a reminder of Christ and his perfect life and death and resurrection of on, on our behalf. For those of you in this room who have trusted in Christ alone, the invitation for you this morning is to hear God say to you, I love you. To hear God say to you, you're perfect. To hear God say to you, not guilty. To hear God say to you, you're righteous. To hear God say to you, I don't care how many times you've done that thing. The blood of my son was more than enough to cover over that thing. For those of you in this room who've done something that, that really is horrible, that you think there's no way that God can forgive you, what God says to you in this meal, this Passover meal, is he says, the blood of my son, my perfect son, is more than enough to cover over that sin, though it was huge there, it was horrible. It's not bigger than the blood of my son, right? For those of you in this room who have committed some sin, even though you knew better, you chose to do it willingly, God says to you in this meal, even that can be forgiven by the blood of my son, right? And so in this meal, we're reminded of the gospel. We get to partake in the gospel. We get to rejoice in the proclamation of Christ. I'm going to read the words of institutions from 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that you simply sit there as long as you need to before you get up to receive uh, the bread and the wine. Um, but again, I want you to really let this, this truth, the truth of the gospel, sink down into your heart that you, if you trust in Christ alone, that you are completely right with God. Here's what we're told in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, we celebrate this morning a suffering Savior. Father, I thank you that we celebrate this morning um, the fact that you entered into humanity through your Son uh, to suffer, um, to experience pain, to experience death, to experience rejection. Father, even to experience um, the wrath that sin deserved. Father, you suffered on our behalf, but yet this morning, Father, it's precisely because of the suffering of your son, Jesus, that we know that we are right with you through him. And so, Father, I pray that our hope 
that our strength, that our ability to come before you not only in this meal, but come before you in worship publicly and privately, that our hope would always be in the gospel, that our hope would always be in Christ. And so it's in the name of your precious, beautiful son, the spotless Passover lamb. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.